Hello, and welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. Out of CIUT 89.5 FM, or on your local community radio station, we do appreciate every single individual that tunes into this program. And I am David Hostetter. I'm Stefan Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Latour. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. Thank you very much for joining us for our special programming of good news, good vibes only on the green majority, that beautiful green spring that is just around the corner, and those glorious internal paradisical paradisiacal uh, manifestations. I definitely think it's paradisiacal. I think that's definitely, (laughs) I think that's unquestionably the right one. Sorry, what? Can you spell this word for me? Those manifestations of paradise that are emerging from our hearts and minds every day as we envision our beautiful and glorious future. And uh, we're going to do good news stories and we're going to talk about good things uh, because there are good things happening. And uh, Stefan's going to kick us off with um, something he wanted to talk about and then we're going to get into some news. So go, Stefan. Uh, Lauren's also got some news. So we'll do two of a, two pieces of news before we dive into the, the bulk of it. Oh, right. But, My apologies. But yeah, the world is tough. So we decided to do a good news episode. No, no, no. The world is fine. It's not fine. Oh, it, yeah. We did just want a, a, a disclaimer. <laughs> yeah. It, things are bad. We're not ignoring the current situation in Ukraine oh, or oh, tangentially no. all of the other terrible <laughs> situations across the world. We're not ignoring the fact that the IPCC came out this week and said like, Oh, we're just as effed as we said we were last time. One of these came out, if not more. So we're not ignoring anything. We are just choosing to focus on some positivity right now. So hopefully this is the next hour is a little like beacon of warmth and hope in your day. I will be cutting those those neggy vibes that you just put out there. <laughs> My good news to start us off is also what we'll be covering next week's is that there are 40 plus communities across the country that are organizing you know, to bring a bold vision of a just transition to Canada. Uh, these are or across Canada. I I did a quick search of the map. Looks like almost every province is is working on here. Not yet any territories. If you live in a territory and you listen to the show, uh, you can be the first. And I'm sure that the folks at 350.org uh, Canada or Council of Canadians would happy to help you out. But yeah, there are people, despite everything happening, organizing together to envision a better future, which to me is already a great start to this good news show. Are they organizing to envision the future or are they organizing to obtain the future? They're organizing to make it happen. There you go. How exciting. That's great. So I was, yeah, specifically looking for good news stories. And this one came up on the National Observer. It's not, it wasn't a super news story, but it was exciting to me because um, I did my undergrad at a university called Mount Allison out in New Brunswick in a really small town called Sackville. And Sackville is a really, really cool place. It's um, it's a town of about, I think, 5,000 permanent residents that goes up to about 8,000 when, st- when classes and sessions. So it's, it's a really tiny place. It's a really neat place. And it's full of like really awesome people who like very consciously try to like build community. It's really neat in that way. Is the university perfect? No, they still haven't divested and we've been campaigning them for like a decade now, but so, you know, we're winning battles here and there. Um, and one of the things that this piece was talking about, this was actually part of a larger series put out by the national observer, um, over 
about a year, I think, looking at 13 different municipalities and sort of different ways that they were approaching climate change. This one was about um, a committee that was struck municipally called the Mayor's Roundtable on Climate Change. And what's really neat about it is that they have a mandate, um, and I think they might even have set themselves this mandate, to examine all municipal decisions through a climate lens. Um, so they basically, they they there's 16 people on this committee and I'm sure it's rotating to some degree. Um, and it's made up of counselors and students and academics and scientists and local business owners and nonprofit folks. You kind of, it runs the gamut. They've got a pretty, um, I hate to use the word diverse, but like good cross section of, of community representation on this committee. And they developed a set of principles that must be applied to all municipal decisions to ensure that potential climate impacts are minimized. Um, and it's so a really simple concept, but has the potential to have a lot of impact. I think my biggest question going into this would be to see like, does this uh, round table committee style uh, body, uh, does it represent like a scalable model for larger municipalities? Because how great would it be to get a commitment from more municipalities to examine like literally all municipal decisions via this climate lens? So like one of the, one of the examples in this paper, and I know this sounds small, but like it's, it is those little things, especially in a smaller community that have a lot of impact. It was the example of a dog park that was under consideration at the time. And the dog park was set to be 10 kilometers outside of the city, which doesn't sound like a big deal until you realize that like for a small town to require everybody to drive 20 kilometers round trip to take the dog to the dog park, like that's a certain, that's a, that's a fairly sizable degree or like amount of emissions for an otherwise pretty small place that's pretty walkable actually well it's it's incredibly walkable you can go from one end of the town to the other in about 25 minutes i did it drunk in heels most weekends so um it seems small but but there's a lot of potential for impact and it was just like wow what a what a cool initiative so exciting that this is happening um and would love to see something like this modeled and again scaled up in larger municipalities everywhere Wait, where was that again? This was Sackville, New Brunswick, mm. which is also cool because Sackville, New Brunswick has um, CHMA, which is the local university radio station, which is, I believe, or at least at one part was at one point was one of our syndicate partners. Yeah, shout out to Sackville. All right. Well, I, I feel like I was going to say that we're going to go to the news now, but we just covered some news. So now I feel like we need a name for the news. So let's go to uh, the rundown. Oh, well, no, no, Ooh, no. love that. Um, the no, rundown. No. That's fun. Dave, that's take us to the rundown. That's a fun joust, vibe. Oh, no. Those jousty little pointing uh, six shooter fingers you just busted out when you said it too. Also disturbing. No, no. First, we're going to go to a short, a short little chill music here. A couple of minutes of some nice music. Ease us on out. No, we're not calling it the rundown. All right, we'll try another name next week. We'll see how that yeah. happens. Although, if you like the rundown on socials, let us know. Uh, just, Rachel But just Green. know that every time Stefan says the word rundown, he clicks his fingers like he's shooting a little pistol. So just. I don't hate it. We're only calling it the rundown if I hear some like really good pulsing highway beats to introduce the rundown. So if you come up with those, we'll think about it. Okay. All right, social media people, you know what to do. Find us some great pulsing beats. Okay, the, the head bobbing I'm witnessing right now. The viewers can't see it, but it's truly heinous.
Okay, so news. <clears throat> so we're going to do some news. Uh, good news. The energy mix reported, and we talked about this in the fall when it came out, but we're being reminded of it again because it's important. The energy mix reported a couple weeks ago about a climate journalism webinar uh, in which two senior climate scientists, one of whom was Michael Mann, emphasized the six-month-old finding that we are not necessarily doomed after all. Did you hear that, Stefan? I said we are not necessarily doomed after all. I remember that part of the IPCC. I remember uh, this is because we are not locked into as much warming as we previously thought. This is because natural carbon sinks like oceans and forests will continue to absorb carbon after we stop emitting it. This means that if we stop emitting carbon or if we zero out emissions, Earth's temperatures will stabilize in around three years. This means we still have more than enough time to avoid catastrophe, and we may even have more time than we think. Included in the article is commentary from Salim al-Huk, director of the International Center for Climate Change and Development in Bangladesh, who notes that his country is among the biggest victims of the warming that has already happened, but even they are not succumbing to despair. And the United Nations Environment Program, the UNEP, UNEP, has facilitated a resolution from 175 nations to develop a legally binding agreement to end plastic pollution. An intergovernmental committee will now begin to work uh, to draft, begin work to draft a global agreement by the end of 2024. The agreement will address the full life cycle of plastics, product design, and technology sharing. So this is the one that I believe we manifested, everybody. Well done, because we set out to make this Posse Vibe show weeks ago, and somehow on the day we were recording it is the day that this news drops. Like this, this, this resolution between 175 organizations is has nations. been called nations. Sorry, 175 nations has been called historic. Mm. It, it's the goal is that it's supposed to cover the full life cycle of plastic. Even some of the most cynical people I follow on Twitter were excited about this resolution, which is really how I judge how much I should be paying attention to some of these things, because so often they can be, you know, not as great. But this one seems to have some some weight behind it. It will we'll be negotiated over the next two years. And the people are coming out here, Sarah, saying this is the only this is the this is only the end of the beginning. Uh, we have a lot of work ahead of us. But they people were like tearful. This this agreement has been called the biggest climate, the biggest environmental agreement since the Paris Accord. It is truly actually a huge deal. Uh, and over the next two years, we'll see how much you know pushback gets from the oil industry that we've seen we've seen in other places. But truly good news, and hopefully the beginning of the end of single use plastics, which is so desperately needed. That is very cool. Um, we probably can't take all the credit for manifesting it. I mean, the people who haven't shut up about single-use plastics for the last 10 years have like, probably we can throw them a bit of credit, but, yeah, but that's fantastic. Like you said that like, this was actually, there's, I feel like there's so often the single-use plastics thing feels like a bit of a policy cop-out or feels like a bit of a, like, um, not even policy, but like announcement, like kind of red herring. It's like a, I remember I feel like McKenna always used to be talking about, oh, plastics and ocean waste and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, cool, show me the goods, actually. Like, show me the good work you're actually doing. So if you're telling me that people were actually excited about this resolution, that's an exciting development. 
That is a good news story. I almost feel like we need like a, I want to like insert a sound effect, like woo woo, or like, do, what was like, do you guys remember like the EDM siren that was really big for a We need some sort of sound effect. Yeah. We'll, we'll try a different one at each time, you know? Sounds good. But back to Dave. Oh, he keeps he keeps pointing at me, guys. <laughs> he is going to shoot off my Sahasvara chakra with his uh, imaginary six shooter, <clears throat> Derringer. Powerful week. Okay, so a recent study published in Nature Geoscience is arguing that a previous scientific projection about the slowing down of Atlantic Ocean currents. Uh, was based on data that were too limited. The previous study argued that global warming was slowing down Atlantic Ocean water circulation, and weather patterns in Europe and North America could change drastically as a result. Like in the movie The Day After Tomorrow, in which New York turns into the Arctic. I believe that is, that is correct. That's what happened in that movie. And so this study argues that if we analyze more and better data, the ocean current change is actually uncertain and it has not necessarily even begun. And now I have uh, several several uh, points about electric vehicles and batteries now. <clears throat> so a study published a couple months ago in Nature Communications found that in contrast to the opinion of various analysts, Emissions from the production of electric vehicles are far lower than the emissions in the production of fossil fuel vehicles, and that if we factor in the cost of indirect emissions to the price of these vehicles, EV sales will actually go up. This means that when it comes to emissions, electric vehicles are far superior to fossil fuel vehicles no matter where in the production chain you analyze it. A new study from the car insurance company Auto Insurance EZ has found that, contrary to the opinions of some other analysts, electric vehicles are much less likely than fossil fuel vehicles to catch fire. A new method of recycling lithium-ion batteries has created recycled batteries that are actually better than new batteries. The team that developed the method created, in their recycling process, a more breathable structure for the battery, with more room for its crystals to expand as ions move through them, causing them to crack less. This means that the method could be used to improve the performance of new batteries as well. There are three companies in the UK uh, currently developing methods of using offshore wind farms to charge electric ships. And finally, the European Union has brought in a new law that will greatly incentivize companies to switch to electric trucks for international shipping. Electric trucks will be given a discount of at least 50% on distance-based road tolls. Every country in the EU will have to implement such a law by the end of the year. Amazing. Um, I've decided the sound that I'm playing in my head, at least, is the intro sax to Carly Rae Jepsen's Runaway With Me for any listeners that might know that song. So that that's what's playing in my head every time I hear one of these stories. Um, no, that's fantastic. Going back up to when you reference the day after tomorrow, Dave, because like everybody knows, like I'm a pop culture idiot, everything I experience in life, I can tie back to some sort of movie. So knowing that that may not be our fate, New York becoming the Arctic is very exciting, but moving on from that really quickly, that's a really awesome set of battery related stories you have there, because I think for the past, well, 
for several years now, I feel like the environmental community has been really, really hesitant to dig into a lot of the issues presented by lithium mining and like where we're going to get these resources to produce all these various battery powered devices and machines that we're going to be um, transitioning over to in the coming years and decades. Because if you sort of dig into the background of like lithium battery production, not only is it really environmentally damaging, but it's also, it, it can be, it can be a bit of a nightmare for those communities that we're going into to mine these products and get this ore. So the fact that there is so much headway being made to, to develop things like a better recycled battery is really cool and is really exciting and means that, um, we're like, we're one step closer to sort of not only making things a little bit better from a climate and environment standpoint, but also like making sure that we're not screwing over those communities that we're going to for, for, for resources. A hundred percent. That's definitely one of the things that I pulled from those stories as well. Just the unbelievable importance that if our goal is to limit those impacts that recycling batteries will need and the fact that those are improving is, is huge. The other thing I, the other thing I want to note quickly though, is something I, I'm hearing more and more about uh, in the past little bit is this sort of shift from sort of the idea of things being sustainable to things that being regenerative. And what I really like about this battery technology and these things, batteries, is that it's not just saying these will degrade slow, more slowly over time. It's saying, oh no, we can actually take this stuff and and bring it back and actually you know reuse it fulsomely, maybe even make it better. And that ethos for the world, you know, of just like, we're not just trying to survive here. We want to actually regenerate the world is an ethos that I think that we sort of need to bring to much more in our, in, in our thinking, not just, you know, batteries or, or anything else like that. But, uh, but yeah, all good news. And now I want to listen to that saxophone, but before I do, also, I will say that the, I have harped a few times on the idea that the. Atlantic current will break down. So if it doesn't, great news. Lovely. All right. So moving on. <clears throat> Three utility companies in Massachusetts are working on se separate pilot projects to create whole neighborhoods heated by connected geothermal systems. Jess St. John writes for Canary Media, quote, Massachusetts major gas utilities facing the eventual demise of fossil fuels under the state's decarbonization mandate are contemplating a new business model, replacing neighborhood gas pipeline networks with pipes that capture and share thermal energy underground. The projects could potentially expand to allow gas utilities to become carbon free if they can convince enough people to sign on. Now we have a, a study from a few months ago out of Stanford uh, examined the stability of power grids in the United States and found that an entirely green energy grid would be much cheaper and less susceptible to blackouts than what's currently in place, especially in places like Texas. The researchers found in their modeling, quote, per capita household annual energy costs were nearly 63% less than in a business-as-usual scenario. In some states, costs dropped as much as 79%. The investment cost to transition everything in the U.S. ranges from near $9 trillion to $11 trillion, depending on how much interconnection of regions occurs. However, this pays for itself through energy sales and from the cost savings each year compared with not transitioning. In fact, based on energy cost savings alone, 
the payback time may be as short as five years. The study also found that to keep an entirely renewable power grid stable, we don't even need special powerful long-duration batteries. We can instead link together a bunch of short-duration batteries of the kind that we already have, which works just as well and which can also ensure that everyone has power even if there's a huge surge in demand. The Stanford article, the Stanford article explaining the research reads, quote, The researchers' simulations suggested that blackouts in California and Texas could be avoided at low cost due to a clean, renewable grid. Part of the reason is that energy requirements are reduced 60% in California and 57% in Texas by electrifying all energy sectors and providing the, and providing the electricity with clean, renewable energy. A second reason is that when wind is not blowing, the sun is often shining during the day and vice versa. So using both helps meet demand with supply. Third, giving people financial incentives not to use electricity at certain times of the day helps shift the time of peak electricity demand. Fourth, using storage helps to fill in supply gaps when wind and solar are not available. Fifth, during cold spells, wind is stronger on average, so increasing wind energy helps to meet winter peaks in building heat demand. And sixth, underground seasonal heat storage helps meet winter heat demand. Uh, these last two are especially helpful for Texas, they write. Awesome. So I want to go back to that first story because there are a few different kinds of problems that exist within trying to you know, tackle climate change. There are the sort of technical problems that we haven't really solved. There are the cultural problems that sort of require you know, our collective action to sort of change how we exist in culture. And then there are the we just have to throw money at this that will get paid back set of problems. And heating and cooling our buildings is just the latter. It's just the problem of we need to put up a bunch of money up front. It will pay back. It will save everyone money in the long run. It's just you have to invest early and in those payback periods, and you will eventually be fine. It is and one of the answers is this sort of district heating and cooling, where you connect a whole bunch of buildings together, and you know you pump heat from one building that's too hot to the building that's too cold, and vice versa, using the ground as a it, it, it um, keeps at the same temperature. It's like a insulator. Yeah, basically regulator. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, and and use so like and so using that the ability of the ground to sort of hold things at the temperature that they are. If you go really deep, it becomes geothermal, and that's where you get the heating element from, and that's you can use that as well. But some you don't even need that. Some are just about district ener district ener about just sharing it back and forth in different places. And the idea that this is an opportunity for an a, a gas company to actually hit net zero and actually change its whole business model while still existing and using its ingrained, already existent structures. Expertise, expertise and structures is is huge, right? Like that's such a good opportunity. And it is a great opportunity, probably reduces the costs, keeps the people who are working in this field able to be employed and, and providing a, a net zero or carbon free uh, type of job. It's, these are the kind of solutions that like, we should start at, at full scale immediately. Because yes, there are some technological problems, you know, they'll take longer to figure out. We are not 100% there on figuring out how to make green steel, for example, but we 100% can tackle things like these buildings. We just have to invest and it will save us money in the long run. 
it, it, these are the no-brainer ones that we have to start now. So the more examples like this, the better. And that's all the good news I got to you, Lauren. No, totally. Um, it's reminding me of, there was a, there's a million think tanks that have come up with a million different sort of like pathways to transition and how we're going to get to zero emissions by 2050. And one of them is based out of Canada, based out of Ottawa, actually, I think the lead researcher, the, the sort of the the director of the effort is, his name is James Meadowcroft. He's a professor. Um, and I believe, oh, geez, I think it's called Energy Futures or Energy Transitions. I'll look it up while, while David's reading the next story. Um, but basically, like, that's one of the things that they argue for in this sort of, like, map trajectory pathway to zero is that there are these things that are sort of like often referred to as the low hanging fruit, but like those things that we know how to implement, we have the means to implement. Now we maybe just need an influx of cash. And those are the things we need to be doing like fast and loose, get them out of the way now while we can. And like, there, there's some things that are more complicated that require a little more forethought that require a little more finessing in their execution, require more uh, DNR to happen first before we can dig into them. But, but things like this, things like what you were talking about, Stefan, it's like, no, we know how to do that now. Why, why are we wasting time debating it? Just dig the frick in. Um, that, that's what, yeah, that was my thought. All right. So now we'll go for a nice little music break and come back with some good news. Oh, I was just going to say, I remembered it's transition accelerator is the name of that thing tank I was referencing. back with the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. So uh, the UK says so here's some here's some some stuff out of the UK. Uh, the UK company Quadrilla has now reluctantly shut down its two shale gas wells. They had been told to, they didn't want to, and then six months later they did. Passive house buildings are growing popularity in popularity in the UK. These are buildings constructed or retrofitted to bring energy demand, specifically heating demand, down to very low levels while being comfortable and having good air quality. Uh, green measures in the UK to use more efficient home appliances and boilers are already saving households around £1,000 a year. Uh, Brendan Montague recently reported for The Ecologist on a joint report from a climate charity and an employment think tank, which concludes that for the UK, quote, 
a move to rail low emission a, remo- a move to rail uh, low emissions ferries domestic tourism aviation research and development and cleaner fuels generated from electricity to reduce emissions from flights could create a net increase of between 28 uh, 280,000 and 340,000 jobs the city of paris france is going to ban cars from driving through four central districts by the end of next year. This will reduce traffic in those neighborhoods by over 50%, since a majority of the traffic is from cars who are cutting across town. Not Paris, Ontario, though. Those people love cars. That's why I had to emphasize France, because otherwise you will mistake it for the Ontario town. Yeah, that was... I, I feel like I just... I sound like a bit of a broken record, but like... When you said a UK company has reluctantly shut down two shale gas wells, like my heart soared. <laughs> so exciting. Not not least of which because like they were reluctant and they were like, oh man, this sucks. Cause like, I'm always happy to see a capitalist lose some cash, but like, that's fantastic that there just clearly was not the market needed for these shale gas wells anymore, which means that like we are well and truly into this transition. It's undeniable. It's here. It's happening. Get on board or get out of the way and like get out of here with your nonsense. Natural gas as a bridge fuel solution because it's not it. If it can't work in the UK, it likely can't work here. And it does. Anyway, I'm 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 flying high at just those simple words. Reluctantly shut down two shale gas wells. Amazing. So simple. So beautiful. So great. Uh, and I will uh, I'll follow the second story there uh, in regards to time and time again, every time a city shuts down an area of their space to cars, everyone loves it. Yeah, you know, It happens in New York and everyone's like, oh, you can't shut down these areas to cars. Everyone loves it. It happens like every time this happens, people re- realize the experience of actually being able to live in a city where they can walk around and feel safe just walking around and being there. And people flood to those areas because it is great. Like every time this happens and it, it never, like, I feel like whenever these examples of these, these places that go, don't go back, you should realize, and we should all realize that these are good ideas and that they don't just improve the environment. They improve every part of people's living, thriving beings. They can experience being in a city that feels like it's made for them rather than the people who are driving through it. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard of anybody going to Venice and being like, Venice is great, but you know what I wish I could have done? Driven a car through those streets. (laughs) Like that doesn't, that's not a thing. And like on that note, so most listeners who've listened more than once will know I live in Ottawa. Um, So obviously I was here when like all the craziness went down last month with the occupation. And one of the things that's potentially come out of the occupation is the idea that Wellington street, which is a street that goes in front of parliament, which eventually feeds into Rita, which is a very busy Avenue. um, It might, might end up being shut down for, for pedestrians only and, and transit. And whenever I see articles written about it in like local newspapers, it's like, Oh, like NCC or like whatever body warns that it might, we might have to make Wellington pedestrian only. And it's like, yeah, that's a great idea. It should be pedestrian only, like not just for security reasons, but because like, doesn't it, doesn't it just make so much sense that the one street that kind of comes into that parliamentary precinct would be pedestrian only just for like everybody's safety, everybody's security. And just like 
I don't know. There's so many tourists that come to that area every year and it would be a far more pleasurable experience if they weren't like squishing onto sidewalks, if they like felt free and easy and comfortable walking along that relatively large avenue that up until now has just been taken over by like gridlock traffic. Anyway. Italy has voted to make ecological protection part of its constitution. Uh, Rosie Frost writes for Euro News, quote, the state must now safeguard ecosystems and biodiversity in the interest of future generations. Those those words are in the, the legislation itself, in the interest of future generations. Um, but the, she also writes, the changes to the Constitution also mean that the health and the environment must be protected by the economy. The new law states that private industry can no longer impact the climate. The protection of animals has been recognized too. But this statement that private industry can no longer impact the climate is quite a broad and bold one, so I don't quite know what's going on there. But Ecuador's highest court ruled last month that the indigenous Kofan community in the country's northern Amazon had their rights violated by oil projects. And now, as a result of the ruling, all extractive projects must seek consultation as well as the consent of all indigenous communities across the country. Well, the ones that are affected, of course, are not going to stretch across the country to ask someone who's not affected by it, but they also ruled that the consultation process must be clear and accessible for the whole community. Some This is the piece of good news that was sent to us by our community, so thanks for who the folk who said this to us via Twitter. The part that I would love to highlight here very quickly is this kind of response and requirement it should be one of the parts of if a jurisdiction here in Canada wants to pass something like UNDRIP, this should be part of it. it. It can't just be like, oh, in future we'll do better. It's no, 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 no. You got to go back and look at each current occupying mine or dam or anything else and and begin a conservation process, right? Like you can't just say, okay, we'll do better later in the future. You got to go back immediately, which it sounds like this is actually doing, which is saying like, if you have a mining community right now, we must start a process to have this conversation about it because you can't just say, oh, we had this mine in your territory before this rule came out. So it now gets to not care about that. That's not real. And this is great news. Uh, so yeah, good night. Good news. Yeah. That retroactive element is super key. Um, the other thing I was going to, this is actually, this is a question for us to mull over and look over for future dates, but talking about that, um, that Italian new protection in its constitution, um, the state must now safeguard ecosystems and biodiversity um, is reminiscent, reminds me a little bit of laws that were similar, seemingly laws that were passed in like Ecuador and Bolivia in recent years around like the rights of mother earth and Pacamama. Um, and I know there are lots of good people doing lots of research into it, but it would be really interesting to see if like after the implementation of laws like this and, and shifts in constitution like this, what, what the sort of tangible positive effects are. Um, because like there is a, although this cynical voice isn't speaking much during this episode, it's like, it does make me wonder, it's like how much of this is, is similar to maybe those climate emergency um, sort of measures that were passed in so many municipalities a few years ago that unfortunately didn't necessarily result in tangible change, except in a handful of spaces. So I'd be really curious to go back and see, it's like when, when changes are made to constitutions like this and those big overarching rights of mother earth laws, um, what kind of positive um like what what are the positive effects of that um if there are positive effects or or is it more of a is it is it lip service i guess that's that's a question for future for future me to answer 
memo to me to look into that later. Let's uh, take another chill music break and come back with these good news. And we're back with the Green Majority, Canada's number one source of good environmental news. That's according to McLean's and the Walrus. Thank you. Sorry, did you just pronounce it McLean's? It wasn't pronounced. (laughs) McLean's. McLean. So uh, last month, Panama introduced a law that recognizes nature as a, quote, unique, indivisible, and self-regulating community of living beings, elements, and ecosystems interrelated to each other that sustains, contains, and reproduces all beings. It's quite something. Uh, This community has the, quote, right to exist, persist, and regenerate in its life cycles. Regenerate its life cycles the right to conserve its biodiversity, and the right to be restored after being affected directly or indirectly by any human activity. Australia's uh, largest coal plant, so this is in Australia, Australia's largest coal plant, obviously it's in Australia, I've just said it's Australia's largest coal plant, in the country of Australia, is set to close in 2025, which will be seven years ahead of schedule. Uh, Prince Edward Island released its plan to reach net zero by 2040. The Energy Mix reported last month that a new binational investment platform in the Great Lakes has mobilized $4.5 billion U.S. for green projects, such as a renewable energy co-op in Ontario, a municipal solar program in La Crosse, Wisconsin, a green bond program run by Detroit utility giant DTE, an energy efficiency program in Michigan, green roof and energy efficiency investments in Minnesota, Detroit, and Chicago, and a bid by a firm called Quantified Ventures to use carbon credits to fund reforestation of former coal mine land in Pennsylvania with the possibility of extending the effort to Ohio, West Virginia, and Kentucky. Energy News Network described the platform as, quote, a matchmaking service publicizing green investment opportunities and projects and helping to connect funders and lenders with these initiatives, while also allowing projects to learn from each other. And finally, the University of Ottawa recently announced that it will end all direct investments in fossil fuels by the end of the year and all indirect investments by the end of the decade. Student activists in the states, meanwhile, from Yale, Princeton, MIT, Stanford, and Vanderbilt, 
have developed a coordinated legal strategy to condemn their institution's investments as irresponsible and against their students stated against the school's stated mandates to invest prudently and protect their students and the futures of the institutions themselves. So I don't know exactly the difference here between the strategies, but uh, a writer for Grist argued that the student divestment campaign is becoming more coordinated and sophisticated in developing better arguments. And this is now, they're, no, they're now coming at the institution's actual duties now, I suppose, instead of what, what were they doing before? I would argue with somebody who was a fossil fuel divester, that is what was happening before. I think it's literally just a, it's, it's, it's credit to the amazing tenacity of these campaigns and these students that have continued to carry this mantle for so long and have continued to educate them on topics that they shouldn't have to be like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, they're having to argue against financial investors who have been in this business for, for decades and decades. And they're, they're called upon oftentimes when you criticize a system that's in place, it's immediately volleyed back onto you and be like, okay, well then how should we do it? So then all of a sudden you're asking these students who are like carrying full caseloads in the humanities half the time to all of a sudden become like economics and investment experts as well. When realistically, all they should have to do is like that, that shouldn't be their job. It should be the investment firm's jobs to come up with these solutions. Anyway, sorry. Um, Anyway, these have always been pretty sophisticated operations. I think the difference is now it's like the overwhelming amount of support for divestment is actually starting to get to these institutions. And they're starting to feel that like, oh, the tides are actually turning here. We actually are starting to feel some heat. We are starting to look like crappy institutions for not divesting. Um, so I think it's, yeah, the sophistication has always been there. I think it's, it's finally, they're starting to feel the heat and the pressure of like the mounting years and years and years and like vast number of people that are behind these campaigns. Not to say that the people operating them now aren't sophisticated, but just that they always have been. Sorry to clarify. I've got a second sentence, which is not honestly as good as the previous sentence that uh, that Lauren highlighted as being great, but it's from that coal the coal plant because I was curious if they were reluctantly shutting it down. But in fact, no, they are seeking approval to shut it down seven years early. They have to ask the government to shut it down seven years early, I guess, because they've sign some agreement to provide a certain amount of power to the to the Australian government. So unfortunately it's not reluctant because it means that this they're still oil, sorry, there's still a coal company that's still making it. I think Australia is still very heavy coal dependent, but they are asking to shut it down and it is part of improvement. And so that is still good news. Still positive. I still love it. I'm still here for it. I'm yeah. hoping I'm hoping then what that means is that if they are sort of shutting it down of their own accord and they're rolling it back as they want to be, my hope is then that they're putting adequate resources into like retraining staff and putting them into different positions and stuff like that. I mean, like that might be even more of a pipe dream, but like that's the hope then is if they're is if they're sort of what is it really executing a managed decline that people are always calling for that they're doing it in a mindful and careful way. Shout out to Panama for the recognition. Uh, of nature as, I'll say this again, quote, a unique, indivisible, and self-regulating community of living beings. And then the, actually the further part, maybe more important, it has the quote, right to exist, persist, and regenerate its life cycles. Because I think that we are increasingly living in a time in which we are trying to expand our understanding and our connection to 
all living beings. And I think these types of things, I think for, for a while, they've been sort of like little stories, you know, like, oh, like, you know, you, you give personhood to a river or to a tree and these things sort of come out and you're like, I wonder that has a lot of impact. And I think in, 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 in small instances, I think they might not have as much impact, but I think collectively as more and more they come through, it sets a, a precedent and a growing push that I think eventually will be big enough to, I think, really bring the rights of nature into our actual, you know, laws. And then that is, I think, the next and yeah, I think it's a dark horse on getting real action here is what I'm, I'm trying to say. I think these types of moves in some of these smaller states that are really trying to take on the right to exist of nature specifically as and ecosystems more generally as super key. I think they are a dark horse in the good news stories uh, repertoire, much like Carly Rae Jepsen's uh, sleeper hit, which would be cut to the feeling. Indeed. And as we manifest this great future together, as we continue to manifest this great future together, we must remember to cut to that feeling, that feeling of love, that feeling of light, and that knowledge that the great future is coming towards us on the horizon as we visualize it approaching. All right. And next week we will be doing Just Transition. Yeah. A dive in Just Transition efforts. You can still join those efforts. They're all happening on March 11th and 12th that weekend. You can find out more by searching for Justin Just in Canada from thrifty.org or Council of Canadians. There's one probably close to you. And if not, I'm sure there's some digital actions you can take part of. We'll be interviewing at least two, if not three, maybe four different activists about this effort next week.